Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. I, we're in uh, Matthew chapter five today. Ben, last week, Pastor Ben, he opened up the sermon on the Beatitudes for us. Um, Matthew chapter five through seven is uh, Jesus' first recorded sermon. And it's significant because it's the first one that's written down and all the things that he's kind of unveiling in this sermon. It's not the first time that he's spoken. The Bible says that he's been teaching throughout the synagogues by this point. But it's the first one that the gospel writers record. And what does he start unveiling in this first recorded sermon? What's its significance? Why is it important? He starts talking about the kingdom of God that he's setting up, that he's inaugurating. And in the verses that we're in today, he's specifically talking about what are the people in the kingdom of God like? And I think that's pretty significant. Instead of just talking about the kingdom, this is what the kingdom's like, this is what the kingdom's like, he does that all across the gospels. The kingdom of heaven is like, and fill in the blank. But specifically here, the first thing he talks about is what are the people like that are in the kingdom of God? Why don't you read it with me? So we're in Matthew chapter five, verse one. When he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you, falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For they persecuted the prophets before you, in the same way. So I want to recap just a few things that Ben opened up for us last week to set the stage for what the Beatitudes are and how we should read and kind of look at these. Um, it's a little bit different, I think, than just, just a plain reading of it. And it almost uh, appears as if it says certain things here that I think it doesn't say. So I'll, I'll help clarify some of those. Um, one of the things Ben talked about last week is the kingdom of God, it's present, and its future kind of at the same time. And sometimes that's hard to distinguish between some of the things Jesus says throughout the gospels. It it, it appears very clearly in some instances as if he's talking about the kingdom and you're like, wow, that's definitely something that's coming and not now. Then you flip a couple pages over and Jesus tells another story and you're like, wait a second. He's definitely talking about something that is clearly now and not mentioning anything about the future. So you start asking the question, well, which one is it? Is it, is it now? Or is it in the future? Make a decision, (laughs) you know? The answer is just yes, it's just yes. It's now and it's in the future. So when Jesus came and he inaugurated his kingdom here, he's setting up a spiritual kingdom with us. And then when he comes back and establishes his millennial kingdom on earth, that's a physical kingdom. And it's both physical and spiritual, but right now is a spiritual kingdom and in the future is the millennial kingdom when all things are made perfect and these blessings are seen and they're fulfilled in most perfect sense. So it's kind of important for us to remember that. Also, if you look at verse three, 
you see a, a difference in the change in, in um, verb tenses here. Read verse three with me again. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven belongs, belongs, present tense, now, now, you're in it. You are in the kingdom of heaven now if you've placed your faith in Christ. You're part of the kingdom. You're the people he's talking about in these verses. And then he bookends it at the very end of the Beatitudes. You look at the very last one. Scroll down to verse 10. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. He uses these two present tense verbs at the beginning and the end of the Beatitudes. But all throughout the middle of them, do you guys notice he's talking about the future? So look at the, look at the second one in verse four. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And it's not like they're not comforted right now. We know that the Lord has sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. We're living in that blessing right now, aren't we? It'll be fulfilled in a more full sense in the kingdom in the future too. So there's this, this duality here. This, there's, there's, there's kind of two natures to it that Jesus is talking both about the present and the future at the, at the same time. And he has a way of doing that that, that can be confusing, but I actually think it makes a lot of sense, you know? And Ben opened up last week and he talked about this idea of the Beatitudes are celebration and invitation. They're two different things, even though it's just just one set of words, it's one sermon. So how are they celebration and invitation? Well, it says that he's talking to the disciples that are sitting right in front of him, right? But who else is there with him? Who else is there with him other than the disciples? Look Look at verse one. And it's like all the crowds followed him up to the mountains too. So he's got two audiences that he's giving one message to. It's kind of important that we keep that in the back of our mind. For those that are in, for the disciples, those that are part of the kingdom, it's a celebration. You're in. You get these blessings. They're yours. The crowds that are sitting there watching, they're not in yet. But the good news is there's an invitation. There's an invitation to come and be a part of it. I think that's awesome. Let's read the verses that we're focusing in on today. We're gonna gonna tackle those first two Beatitudes, verse three and four. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We're teaching two, um, two Beatitudes kind of at the same time because they're different from one another but they follow one another. There's almost a progression here, and I, th- I actually think you can read the, the entire Beatitudes almost as a progression, and not these piecemeal individual things. We'll get into that a different time. But this idea that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be um, comforted, paired with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They follow one right after the other. So h- h- how does that work? Well, once you... Let me say it this way. Once you kind of mentally understand this idea, like, God, I get it. You say that I have to approach you with a poverty of spirit. Spiritually, I don't really bring anything that's of value. So I mentally understand that. That mental understanding is followed up with mourning. Mourning is not overly mental. And if you've ever mourned, you know that. You know that mourning, you would say that's something that you feel it, right? Right? You feel it. Like that, that's describing feeling and not necessarily understanding. The mental aspect of this, it's worked its way down into your heart and you're like, oh, like almost words can't, words can't actually express the way that I feel because I'm, I'm deeply mourning and it's, it's a feeling 
and a heart that has accompanied a mental reality, a, a truth that we, that we understand mentally. And I think that's so neat. So another way that you could actually read this is, blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn and kind of see it all as one thought, even, they're, even though they're um, two separate beatitudes. Um, so what is, what is this idea of being poor in spirit? What does poor in spirit mean? Like, I, I know what it means to be poor. <laughs> I know what it means to be poor. I feel like I've, I've, uh, I have been more poor in the past than I am now, and I know what it means to not actually have a lot of money, you know? But why does he say poor in spirit? What, he talk, what he's talking about here is not actually monetary in any way. He's not, he's not making a, a comment on your wealth in any way. He's making a comment on what is your spiritual condition? They're qualifying that with the word poor, poverty, beggar. So being poor in spirit is you are a beggar spiritually. In the presence of the Lord, you have and possess nothing of value in regard to spiritual matters. Not only do you not possess it, there's nothing that you can do to get it. There's nothing that you can bring to God that will please him. You don't have a righteousness of your own. You don't have a righteousness of your own. And your morality that you bring to the table, your morality, it doesn't please God. You may be moral, but it doesn't please God. The morality that you bring cannot change your standing before the Lord and you can't offer morality in terms of scales that somehow your morality entered into the equation starts to tip the scale a little bit more in, in your favor. It doesn't work that way. The system that God has set up doesn't work by you putting your morality into it and, and getting anything back out of the system. That's not how he's designed it. The Bible says you are dead in your sin. You are dead in your sin, referring to a spiritual state, not a physical state. It doesn't say you are mostly dead. It doesn't say you are mostly gone. It doesn't say you were like kicking a little bit. You're dead. You're goner. There's no life. I thought about, when I was thinking about that idea of, of spiritual death, spiritual deadness, so now Pastor Matt's making up words, it's great. Um, I thought about Lazarus. You guys remember the story about Lazarus? Uh, Jesus' friends come to him and they say, hey, your friend Lazarus is sick. And it said Jesus intentionally waited to go. And then by the time he got there, he was dead. The people came out to meet him. They were, they were mourning. They came out to meet Jesus and they said, why didn't you come sooner? Now he's dead and he's not only dead. We wrapped him up. We buried him. He's inside the tomb his body has started to undergo the process of decay. <clears throat> so I think you guys kind of know the end of the story. I'm going to fast forward to it. Jesus ends up bringing Lazarus back from the dead. He says, roll away the stone. Lazarus, come out. And this guy comes out. Before they roll away the stone, they say, no, no, Jesus, don't open the stone. He's already began to stink. It's bad. Don't do it, right? Jesus, Jesus knows what he's doing. Think about Lazarus' physical state of death at this point. Does Lazarus have the ability to bring anything to the table? Does he have the ability to bring anything to Jesus? Does he have the ability to initiate? Does he have the ability to reach out and maybe touch Jesus' garment to get some sort of healing power? Does he have the ability to reach out and ask and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, heal me, help me? 
Do something for me. Do something for my sickness. Do something for the state that I'm in. Or would you look at his death and say, he's lifeless? His complete inability. Complete inability. There's nothing that he can do to, to reach out. He can't even initiate. He can't even get close to saying, Jesus, do something for me. It has to be all Jesus. It has to be all Jesus initiating it, all Jesus following through with it. And you would, you would make the argument that it makes clear and plain sense there that it has nothing to do with Lazarus. So, so take that picture and apply it to us spiritually. That's our spiritual state. And why I'm trying to paint that picture really clearly is because we have this humanistic side of us that wars against that thought. We have this humanistic side of us that though we kind of understand that mentally and have that on the back burner, I think we still run with this idea sometimes that we bring something valuable to the table or we do something good that we're kind of proud of. And we, we offer that up in a sense where that, God, that, that elevates me a little bit spiritually, doesn't it? That changes my status a little bit, doesn't it? And he says, no, <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> in a very gentle, kind and gracious way, right? Um, <clears throat> you hear people say certain things. Hey, I'm not a bad person. Well, who are you comparing yourself to? You know, as you look around, you say, well, I'm not quite as good as that guy, but I see some guys over here on this end of the auditorium. No, I'm not, not being serious, but you know, there's some guys over here, I'm like better than them, right? I'm doing a little bit better than those guys, so I'm okay. Maybe, maybe I could do a little, things a little bit better. But I'm okay, right? I'm mediocre. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not killing it. I'm knocking it out of the park, but I'm not, ooh, I'm not that over there, right? So we, we play games like that and we do things like that. But who are we comparing ourselves to? Are we comparing ourselves to everybody else? Are we using the standard that the scripture has set up? Jesus says, be perfect because your father in heaven is perfect. Well, you're like, oh, crud. I'm not gonna meet that one. How about be holy for I am holy, says God. Not be better than the other guys. Be holy for I am holy. So when we start forgetting kind of who we are in terms of our standing in the Lord, start looking at God, start looking at his son. And we, we get reminded so quickly, I think sometimes of, how, how far we fall short. Sometimes it takes us actually going through something difficult in life where it, we realize we're going through a situation that situation has naturally humbled us. We're like, oh, this one like knocked me down, took my breath away and I'm stuck, I feel like. And it's sometimes in those times in life where we're like, I get it, God. You're actually sending me a gentle reminder right now that um, it's not gonna be based off of me or you know, the way I do it, what I bring to the table. You ever hear people say, well, really, God just wants me to live a good life. I think he does. There's an element of truth to that. That's not the starting point or the end, though. The starting point is God says, you need to be sick first before you realize you have need for a doctor. You need to get to this point where there's a hole and something for me to actually come and heal and fill in and not just say, well, God wants me to live a good life and I'm gonna go chase that down. You start with Jesus. And the good life is an outpouring of, of him being present in our hearts. It's an outpouring of him living inside of us and producing those things and working a process of sanctification in our life. I'm gonna poke at us a little bit. What about people saying, well, I prayed the prayer. I walked down the aisle. I came, I put my hand up. I, I raised my hands in worship, you know. What about I've been 
I'm baptized. I go to church every Sunday. I'm in a community group. I'm glad you're in a community group, by the way. Pastor community groups. I approve. Um, do those things get us anywhere in terms of changing our spiritual status before the Lord and elevating us in some way? No, they don't. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not Jesus and. It's not Jesus plus. It's Christ alone. Those things don't change our spiritual status, but yeah, it can be kind of confusing sometimes because yeah, they're, they're things that we've been called and commanded to do and to be about, but we don't want to lean into those things as that's the crutch that we're leaning on to fix our spiritual status because that's not true and it doesn't work that way. It's not, that's a system. That's our system. It's not God's system. Do you know him personally? Do you know God and have a personal relationship with him because that's the system that he's set up. He's not distant. He's not out there. He's not up there. He's in here. It's where he chooses to dwell. But he's not going to come in until you say, there's a hole that only you can fill. I love it. Um, there's not a formula to it, right? <clears throat> there's not a certain prayer or a certain way this goes down. I, I'm, uh, I, I looked at that story about Jesus healing the blind man. This guy comes up to him. He's blind. He's been blind his whole life. And, and Jesus is like, hey, let me spit in the mud. He's like, Pah. makes some little mud pies and like smears them on the guy's eyes. He's still blind. Jesus is like, go wash yourself in the pool and then present yourself to the priest and tell him what happened. The guy's like, what? <laughs> you spit in my eye and go wash it off? There's an indication that that guy went away from Jesus being in the kingdom of God. Did you find that interesting? I'm not trying to say or equate it to it's because Jesus spit in his eyes and that's the process. It'd be a good joke though. After service, if you're kind of confused in your spiritual status, come up here and you know, maybe I'll have Josh spit in your eye. Like what? No, okay. The guy came to Jesus with the humble and broken heart, with the contriteness before the Lord. Not, not sick physically, even though Jesus healed him physically, but he came sick spiritually. That's how he entered. So don't, don't be confused on that. Don't think we got to spit in the mud and you know, smash it into people's eyes. It's kind of weird. <clears throat> There's not a formula to it. There's not a certain prayer that you can pray. David captures it really well in Psalm 51 where he says, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's what the Lord desires. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. So contrite meaning I'm feeling or expressing remorse and guilt. It's that same idea of mourning that we're talking about, right? You're mourning your spiritual condition before the Lord. David knew, truly David knew what it meant to be a spiritual beggar. I want to, this morning, look at a couple different examples of some folks throughout the New Testament where we can see this character this characteristic either evident or not evident in them. I want to start out with this story that's familiar to, uh, to some of us. It's uh, the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler. So the story goes, it's in um, Matthew 19. If you want to, you're welcome to turn there. I'm not going to read the passage, but I'm going to pull some quotes out of there. It's in Matthew 19, 16. Um, there's this guy that the Bible says was rich. He was young. He was a ruler. What does ruler mean? Um, there weren't very many things that you could actually rule in Jewish society. They were ruled over by the Romans and they didn't have necessarily the system of government other than there was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the experts in the law. So when it says he was a ru ruler, 
but he wasn't necessarily into those things, we can probably conclude that he was the leader of the synagogue in his town. It's one of the only things that you could rule, and it was an elected position. It was based off the community kind of looking around and saying, who looks good around here? Not physically, but who's doing it right? Who gets it? They're like, that guy. He's going to be the ruler of our synagogue. He's going to be basically the pastor on Sunday mornings, okay? It says that he was rich. It says he was young, which is a pretty cool accomplishment because usually if you were the ruler of the synagogue, you were a little bit more aged. You had that experience in life. You were wise. But this specifically says he was young because it was remarkable that he got appointed to that position at his age. So this guy comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? So not the wrong question, right? Great question. Teacher, what do I got to do? What do I need to do to get in? Jesus says, keep the commandments. Pretty simple answer. So he he replies back. He says, which ones? He's kind of living in this reality that I know there's the 10 commandments, but there's more than 600 that the Jewish people have kind of added to the 10 commandments to elaborate on it and make sure that we build this hedge and keep us far from it. So he says, which ones? Jesus says, well, let me give you a few. He outlines six of the commands. They were ones actually from the Ten Commandments. It says, don't murder, don't steal, honor your father and mother. Gives them a couple more. And the rich young ruler replies back with this. I think this is so interesting. I have wholeheartedly obeyed these laws. I have wholeheartedly obeyed them. I've done it. Then he asks, what else? And I love that question. Because there's something going on inside of this guy's heart that's evident by that question. There's something that he doesn't look at wholeheartedly obeying these laws as being complete. There's a hole. There's actually a hole in this guy's heart that he is acknowledging as he's saying, Jesus, well, what else is there? Because I kind of already know that. And that's what we teach in the synagogue, right? Jesus tells him, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then... Come and follow me. Ouch! Scripture says, he went away sorrowful for he was very rich. He was very rich. The scripture also says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's harder for him to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. It's like Jesus is saying there's not very many rich people that find it because he knows what money does to our hearts and how it takes a place in there and grabs onto things and holds onto things where Jesus should be let in. So did it have to do with this guy's money? No, I don't think that's what, what Jesus was actually getting at. But I, th- I think Jesus saw through this guy, he saw into his heart, and he says, you're bringing your religiosity to the table. You're bringing your following of these commandments and wholeheartedly obeying. And the things that, are, that, that you're relying on for a spiritual standing before the Lord that pleases him is saying, I've done all these things. I'm a good person. I'm a good person and I'm actually doing what the Bible said. And I go to church on Sunday. Jesus says, you're you're still not getting it unless you come and say, I need you. I can't make it without you. You don't get in. You are far from the kingdom because you're not getting it. I'm trying to tell you, this is the way this system works. And if you try to impose your own system on it, you're not getting in. He went away sorrowful for he was very rich. He was no closer to the kingdom of God when he left the conversation 
So when he came, but he still had that hole inside of him. There's um, some really tough words, I think, uh, written in Matthew chapter seven. Let me read them to you. It says, Jesus, um, Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom. And think about that for a second. Not everybody who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast demons out in your name? How many powerful deeds did we do in your name? And I I will declare to them, I never knew you go away from me. So again, I think this is illuminating this system that it's based off of a relationship with Jesus. It's not based off of what you do. It's not bad news. Don't take it the wrong way. It's good news because he did all the work. And it's not relying on what you do or bring to the table. It's, a, it's an issue of praying to the Lord that he crushes your pride and gets you to this spot where you're humble and you're empty and you're saying, Lord, I have a hole and I need you to come fill it. But unless you get to that spot, you're, you remain in a bad spot. I find it ironic with the rich young ruler too that Jesus didn't say the prayer with him, Right? I mean, here's a guy, he's like, you know, he's, he came to Jesus and he says, God, I want eternal life. Jesus says, well, take a knee, I'll put my hand on your shoulder and we'll say the prayer, okay? This is the guy that said the prayer. He walked down the aisle, he raised his hand, you know? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't approach it in this formulaic way. I think he gets at the heart of the issue and says, there's not a formula or a prayer that you can pray or a thing that you can do to satisfy this. In some way, you need to go before the Lord and cry out and say, God, I fall short. I'm not going to make it. It's not going to be me. And ask for his grace and forgiveness and ask him to continually remind you of it so that you live in it. Let's read, um, let's just read those two verses one more time. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. So who are the people in scripture that got it? Who are the people that, that uh, there's, there's actually a lot, way more than we have time for this, this morning, but I want to talk to you guys about three or four of people that I, I think paint this picture of, they understand what it means to have a poverty of spirit and mourn that condition. John the Baptist, um, before Jesus came on the scene, he said, there's one who's coming before me and I'm not fit to untie his sandal. I'm not fit to unbuckle the guy's sandal. So he's kind of referencing this idea of foot washing in the New Testament, foot washing being this thing that, that only the, the lowest of the low did, the servant, the, the low man on the totem pole on the house, that person washed your feet when you entered into the house. They would take your shoe off and it was a dirty job. Your foot was stinky, it was dirty because you walked around in the dirt all day. They didn't have nice like closed-toed shoes like I got on up here, right? You had dirty, stinky feet. The servant would wash it and John says, there's someone coming after me that I'm preaching about, I am not even fit to take his shoe off. Forget washing his feet. It would be an honor to wash his feet. I'm not fit to take the shoe off. John got it. I think John got it. Peter, I feel like I pick on Peter sometimes, even though I do recognize a lot of myself in him. He humbles me, I think. But Peter had the right heart before the Lord. There's no question about his allegiance, um, his need for God in so many places. The one, one of the verses that really strikes me about Peter is um, just towards the beginning when Jesus was calling the disciples, Peter and some of the other disciples are out in the sea fishing. It says, Jesus got in a boat and he went out and he taught the crowds from the boat, the crowds that were on the shore. 
Then he turned to these guys that were out here fishing, Peter, that had been out here fishing all night, okay? Hadn't caught anything. And Jesus tells him, go put your net out in the deep water, Peter. And just pause for a second. If I'm Peter with my pride, I'm like, dude, I've been busting my can out here all night. I do this for a living. The carpenter turned rabbi is telling me to go put my net in the deep water. I tell him, go take a hike. All right, I'm out here, probably sunburnt, tired, dehydrated. I got nothing, I'm about to go in. Peter just heard the sermon that Jesus was giving all these people and he says, if you tell me to do it, I'm gonna do it. He turns around, he throws his net out in deep water. He pulls in so many fish that said that the boat began to sink. The nets began to rip and tear and break because there were so many fish. And it's interesting too, that at the forefront of Peter's mind when he gets back to the shore is not, hey, Jesus, why don't you join our crew and we'll get rich selling fish? Or, hey, maybe we can, we can do this a couple more times and just really wow some people. And people are going to look at us and say, oh, how cool are you guys? You guys know where the fish are. It's like you got the, the 2,000-year-old fish finder, you know? Like, how'd you know they were out there? You cheated, okay? He doesn't say that. He says, Lord, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He didn't even talk about the fishing miracle Jesus just pulled off. I think all of us would sit there and be wowed by it. He says, Lord, depart from me. Go away from me, because I'm not worthy. I am bad. I'm awful. And I know who you are. And I don't deserve to be around you. And I don't deserve to listen to you. And I don't deserve to even have a relationship with you. Go Away from me, far from me. I don't, I don't know, I think Peter, Peter got it. Peter captures it. I want to read to you a quote from Paul. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, the Philippian believers, in Philippians chapter three. Why don't you read this with me? It's up on the screens. Paul says, if anybody thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the laws, a Pharisee, my zeal for God. I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. Reminds me of the rich young ruler. I've done all these things wholeheartedly. But these, ass- these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not because I have a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but because I have a righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. What a cool testimony of Paul. What, a, what an interesting a view on his own life that he said, I had it all. I was the guy that everybody wanted to be. I was the pastor everybody wanted to be. When I look at the way that Paul describes himself, I was like, dude, you were like Andy Stanley and Billy Graham and Francis Chan and Beth Moore all put in this really cool little package, all right? Sprinkle some other Teresa in there. I don't know, like he was the, he was like, wow, look at Paul. I want to be like him. He's doing everything right. And as Paul turns and he reflects on his own life and the place that he's come to in Christ, he said, all those things I thought I brought to the table, not only did I kind of get an upgrade in something much better, 
But I, I look at those as liabilities. Liabilities, like those are the things that they kept me far from the kingdom. They kept me from entering in. They held me back from getting there. They were liabilities to me. And, and, and beyond that, while everybody else thinks that those things were cool and great and awesome, everybody else wanted to be those things, I look at it as poop, dung, rubbish, filth, nastiness. They were, they were actually repulsive. That's how he looked at them. I thought about, when I was uh, reading this passage, I thought about my foster son, Lewis. Uh, Sarah and I took in um, the foster baby, and we've taken this baby into our home, and we said, you know, Lewis, you have a seat at our table. We're gonna provide for you. We're gonna financially provide for you, but beyond that, beyond your physical needs, we're gonna love you, and we're gonna care for you as if you are our own son, and you would be in a bad spot if somebody didn't take you in. You'd be in a bad spot, buddy, you know? Um, kind of incredible to me. I, I thought about what if he kind of, got, I mean, he's only eight months old. He can't talk. He doesn't really know what's going on. But what if he had the ability to kind of recognize what has happened here? We've poured out this blessing and changed his life, whether he realizes it or not. But what if he could realize it? What if he could say, hey, dad, it's really cool. Thank you for doing that. But I want to chip in around here. Actually, I want to do something to offset the sacrifice that you did for me. I want to throw something in, you know, kind of on my own merit and, and, and contribute toward this standing that I now have. You know what the only thing that he can do is? The only thing really that he can do? He makes poopy diapers. He makes them quite often and they're stinky. But this is, this is honestly, this is what he produces. Could you... Could you Imagine a situation where he would reach into his car seat and pull it out and say, here, dad, I worked really hard on this one for you. Here, I want you to know I get all the things you did for me, but I also wanna, I wanna chip in and I wanna offset you know, some of what you did, and this is what I bring to the table. It's ridiculous, right? Like one, one, I don't want this and I never want this and I repeatedly tell him I don't want any more of those but he doesn't listen to me and he just keeps producing them, okay? I don't want this. Two, the second thing, wouldn't you be slightly offended after the sacrifice that you would put in? Wouldn't you be slightly bothered by him feeling like he has to do something to contribute and pitch into that? I mean, think about what God did in, in giving up his son Christ, to, to make things right for us. That's the sacrifice that was involved in that. And I'm about to say, well, let me add to that. And God just stands here and says, what? You want to try to add to that like it wasn't enough? No. Just say thank you. And remember what I did for you. Just say thank you and accept it. And remember what I did for you. That's God's system. There's a quote I want to put up here. I love this. I, uh, it's from Pastor John Piper. He kind of defines this uh, spiritual poverty. Let's just read this together. Poor in spirit, it's a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It's a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. So I love those two words. Powerlessness, helplessness, places that we never want to find ourselves in, right? It's not natural for us to be there. It's a sense of moral uncleanliness. 
Like, like God, I realize I'm, I'm dirty. It's a sense of personal unworthiness. It's a sense that there's, if, is, if there's to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all God and all grace. We have this thing I think our culture chases after called self-esteem. And I know right now I'm poking a little bit because I think people have found that they found basically healing through pursuing this idea of self-esteem. Just stop there for one second and think about what self-esteem is and what you're saying. Like I am thinking more and more and more and more highly of myself in order to propel me to do the things that I need to do. And I think that is not, while it's, it's popular and common and it seems accepted, that's not a route that I think you want to go down. I think what you want to do is say, I raise and lift up and think more and more highly each day of God and the grace that he gave me and his grace propels me to go forward and do the things I need to do. It's not actually me or anything I bring to the table and saying that, God, anything that I am, anything that I actually am, it started with you and it's because of you. That the blessings that are the Beatitudes, and we're gonna keep unpacking these and unfolding these, that the blessings of the Beatitudes, they're not something that we have to work for. It's not, it's not a performance trap. It's not as if, if we do this, then we get this. It's reading it the wrong way. Verse seven, we're gonna talk about blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Is that God actually saying that if I'm merciful enough, then he will be merciful to me? Or is God gonna say one day, you haven't been merciful enough? You didn't quite make it? So now I will pronounce some sort of judgment on you? That's not what the Beatitudes are saying and that's actually bad theology to think that way. It's not an exchange system. I don't do these things to get these blessings. Remember, it's celebration and invitation. It's celebration because Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's saying, you are in. You don't have to do these things. Because of what I've done for you, you're already in. You're already blessed. Uh, Ephesians chapter one says, you've already received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The blessings are already ours. Present now. Yes, they'll be fulfilled in a more fuller sense in the future in the millennial kingdom, but we're already blessed if we're in the kingdom. They're not stuff we have to do to get the blessing. I want to share just a couple closing thoughts with you. I think this passage is actually a tricky passage to teach the, the, the Beatitudes and specifically these two verses because it's one set of words, but it's given two different groups of people. It's given to people that are in the kingdom and people that are being invited. It's a celebration for some and it's an offering for others to say, come. So in some senses, we can talk about the Beatitudes for, for the believer, for those who are in the kingdom. These are things that you already have access to and you increase in as the Lord works this process of sanctification in your life. But kind of across the New Testament, this message is preached, and I preached it this way today also, that for those who have not found the kingdom of God, not found the relationship with Jesus, that's an invitation and it's actually required. So, you, no, you, you do have to do that. You do have to become poor or turn your gaze to Jesus and acknowledge like I have need for a savior. So I think that makes it tricky that there's two people he's talking to today. 
for those that are celebrating, for those that I think are in the kingdom, for the disciples in front of him, for those of us today who have found the kingdom and found a relationship with Jesus. I wanna talk about this idea. How do we get there? How do we get there specifically in terms of, it's easier for me personally to get this mental understanding of poor in spirit and say, I get it. I know what you mean by being poor in spirit. I could put the Piper quote back up there. It's already up there. I get those things. I understand it. I know how the system is built. But how does it go from my head down to my heart? Okay, mourning is feeling. It's not as much thinking. The process of mourning is feeling the grief wash over you. And it weighs on you. It weighs you down. It's heavy. So how do I become a mourner if I'm not a mourner? How do I do that? I have some things that I think might be helpful. I have some suggestions. We've already said this. I'm going to say it again. God's holiness is the standard. Maybe stop looking around at the people that are around you and stop playing the game that we naturally play of comparing ourselves to other people because it's not helpful. When you gaze at God and you look at his son in the New Testament and you allow that to be your standard, it will so quickly remind you and put you back in the spot of right perspective of who you are in relationship to who a holy God is. And that's a good place to be. It reminds us that we need grace and it causes us to lean into Jesus really hard. Um, I want to talk about this idea of continuing in grace. I also find it personally convicting. If you, if you almost took your Bible and you're able to to just plop it open in any of the places that Paul writes in the New Testament, just, just look at how many times he uses the word grace. Grace, grace, grace to you. Continue in grace, live in grace. It's because of grace I do these things. I'm a recipient of grace, 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 grace. He just uses that word over and over again. Why does he use that word? There's no, there's no real verse I can point to that, that says, you know, grace propelled me to do all the things that I did but it's so evident by Paul's writing that grace was this fuel for him to be the things that God wanted him to be and to do the things God wanted him to do. It was grace and that grace came from this idea that I was a beggar spiritually and I had a need for the Lord and he filled that. And I'm living in the reality of grace. I'm living in it. And I constantly need the grace it wasn't a one-time prayer decision for me. I constantly need that grace because I constantly keep messing it up. And all of you guys that I'm writing the letters to, you constantly need that grace. And don't forget it. And when we get that idea that we need grace, I think that grace for us too becomes this fuel and it propels us saying, I have been the recipient of grace beyond what I deserved and propels me to live in a certain way. Talk about grace. I wish grace was on my lips as much as it was on Paul's lips, because I think it would change the way I do things. Um, the last thing that I wanted to kind of look at for a second is renew your mindset and your conviction by spending time with God. Renew your mindset. It's that idea from Romans 12, 1 and 2 that we renew our minds before the Lord. Um, when I was thinking specifically about this message, it seems a little contradictory to me in some ways that the Lord says, Come to me as a beggar, totally unworthy to be in my presence. But then the writer of Hebrews says, approach the throne of grace boldly, boldly come into the throne room, boldly come. And I'm like, how do those add up? How do I say, I'm not worthy to be here, I shouldn't come in. And then Jesus say, boldly come in. You have a place here and you belong and I want you in here. Come to me often, 
Come in here with boldness, not meekness and timidity. Well, it's because the reason that we enter in is because of what he did. And if we know that, we're able to enter in in boldness and say, I know that I'm not so hot. But because of what you did, I will come boldly. We need to remember that. We boldly come. And I would encourage you in your prayer before the Lord, go to him and be, be bold, be raw, be exposed, be honest, be transparent. I think we have a tendency when we're, when we're praying to talk about sometimes things that don't matter that much, um, to beat around the bush with some of the things. And I think God says, now come boldly, talk straight to me. And I think those things um, help us stay in kind of this proper mindset with the Lord. There's this other crowd, remember, there's the invitation. There's the people that he's saying, hey, you're listening. You haven't found it yet. You haven't come in. You have a need for me. And I'm inviting you. Mark 2, 7 says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So in other words, you're not gonna go to the doctor unless you know that you're sick. And Jesus is saying, hey, you've gotta realize that you have a need for me first and I will come in and I will meet that need and I will, I will, I will fill in the gap of deficiency that you will never be able to fill in on your own. You'll never be able to do it. Can't say stuff like, oh, this seems like the right thing to do. I go to church, I'm a good person. Be careful that you're not imposing your system onto God's system. His system says that, that, that he is the only way, that it can't be Jesus and. You can't add this other stuff to it. It can't be Jesus in another religion or another way or another God. There's no, there's no pantheism. There's no multiple truths. There isn't. Our, our society loves to preach that and, and dictate the narrative to us on that, but it's not true. There's not multiple gods out there and there never has been. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna ask you to come down and pray a prayer with me. I think that would be a little bit ironic after the message I just taught. If you're in that spot though and you're ready and you're, you're like, hey, I've got that hole, I understand. And I don't wanna walk away and be just as far from the kingdom as when I walked in, I would encourage you to do some business with God. It's time to do some business with God. It's time to say, God, I recognize the state I'm in and I recognize who you are and I recognize I don't bring anything to the table and I'm begging for your mercy and your grace. If you'll, if you'll come in and start changing me, I would love to have that relationship with you. I think that's what he's offering. That's the beauty of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount here. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to say, come and be a part of this kingdom, of my kingdom, my spiritual kingdom that I'm establishing here on earth. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for a good Sunday morning. Thanks for some um, just truth from your word, Lord. I, God, I feel like I've personally been humbled um, by the process of this message just in feeling sometimes like I can be far from that state of, of mourning, God, and I can be one that has often forgot. I forget the reality of the grace that you offer. And I, um, I don't know, God, I thank you for speaking to me in terms of just shedding some light on being, you know, reminding me and renewing me to be more mindful of some of those things. 
more mindful of um, that I really, I don't bring anything to the table, God. And then, I don't know, a lot of times, Lord, I feel like you work things in my life and you bring things into my life that humble me and remind me that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not actually that good. <laughs> I'm not. Um, I have a need for you and we have a need for you, Lord. Um, I, I pray for our church, for your body, Lord, that you would, um, you would remind us of that grace and that it would fuel us to do the things that you've called us to do and that grace would be constantly on our lips as we're telling people, hey, I have received something that I don't deserve and I'm not gonna make it and you're not gonna make it either unless you turn to the one who can, the only one that can fix it. Um, God, thank you for just every, I don't know, your son and everything he's shown us and who he is. Um, God, I pray that we'd have a good Cinco de Mayo. Um, God, encourage us as we go into the week and help us to, to live for you, Lord. We love you. Amen. You guys have a great week. Thanks.